Hey, here we go. Here we go. Oculi, the third week of Lent, right? So the Son of Man came not to be saved, but to save and give his life as a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son to sinners and laid on him the grievous burden of the cross so that we might see and know the glory of your holy love. Grant that our faith in him may not be shaken by adversity or daunted by threats, but that we ever follow him steadfastly in the way that leads us home. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, good to see you. Welcome back. Um, this is just my observation, but this is about the time when people start to get tired. Uh, you know, you've uh, ashes and alms and sign of the cross and uh, saying your prayers and fasting. This is about the time when people start to waver a little bit. Now, the church knows this about you, so next week, you know, is the fourth Sunday in Lent. Not this week, but next week. And so the color lightens slightly, you know, purple goes to pink that'll eventually go to gold and white you know it starts to lighten slightly and even though there's this period when Lent is about things being tamped down and emphasizing the disciplines uh, next week is Latare Sunday rejoice Jerusalem Latare Jerusalem right is how the introit the, the old introit starts quoting Isaiah so um, you know if you're struggling a little bit just tell yourself that that's natural and then see what happens next. So there are things you can do without too much worry, which is to make the sign of the cross and show the demons who's boss. Not you, of course, but Jesus himself. So you mark yourself with that. And then in your almsgiving, uh, pay attention to that. Try to make it as visible to yourself as possible. Try not to like wake up on day 33 and go, ah, I'm so far behind, I'll try to nail this before day 40. It's really much better to kind of do a little bit every day and think about it and see it and take care of it. And that's true again also with fasting, of course. Um, I've already talked to a couple of you who've blown up your fasts. Okay, um, you know, start over. You're learning something about yourself. Some of you bit off far more than you can chew. That's okay. That's how you find things out. Uh, be careful as you go. Try to find what you want is a level that uh, is slightly tingly and then a little bit more, right? So every time just a bit more to stretch yourself. And the irritation, of course, is to remind you to pause for a moment and remember the irritation of the cross, right? This is simple kind of discipline. And in the same way, you know, I've tried to ask you to say the Lord's Prayer eight times a day. You know, I think I said this last week, but I'll say it again to you. Uh, if you don't do it, you know, four times a day, twice, you might just sit down and say it eight times in a row. I know, you know, that will make every Lutheran in the room nervous. You know, we're just this far away from getting beads. <laughs> My answer to you would be, yes, we are. So, uh, as I said to the new members class on Friday, do whatever you want. You can't get the papers processed fast enough with the district president to get me out of here before I step down. So, you know, I'm, I pretty much feel like I'm on a free reign now, you know. So anyway, uh, you should uh, use all of these opportunities as a chance to uh, fit together. And I'm gonna say a little bit more about this later, but it's really toward virtue. And Lutherans barely talk about that, but you know, that's a great sadness that we don't. Uh, 
we should talk about virtue a bit more. That's one of the things that sort of got thrown out, uh, baby with the bathwater in the Reformation, but it would have done us some good to pay a bit more attention to that. So you recognize that you have the same thing I gave you last week, but that's only because we got halfway through. So I'm gonna start you uh, right about, I think, number seven or so. While you're going there, I will um, kind of just say a bit about where we've gone. So Jesus comes to us and he gives us himself. We talked a little bit about that. So Jesus in his flesh embodies the heart of the Holy Trinity. The heart of the Holy Trinity is self-giving love. Jesus embodies us in flesh and blood. So he brings to earth the mind, the spirit, the will of the Holy Trinity. Now it's there in his body where you can see it and touch it. And he gives us his way, and we talked about how this fits so well with Lent, and I tried to convince you a little bit to just be quiet. That silence is as much a part of prayer as is praying, and Jesus himself is that example. He was up all night, and he was all by himself, and he was rigorous in the way that they had to come and get him and say, it's time to do the next thing. So there, and then that was that very clever bit from now and where he said, you know, absurdus, the, the word for absurd is the word for not listening in Latin. To be absurd is to be deaf. And so then your prayers, like a good sermon, is homo legeo, which is to say the same thing. A pastor is meant to homo, same, legeo, logos, the word, say the same words that God said. So, you know, you should always be saying, is the pastor saying what Jesus said? So your prayers have both this component of silence where you listen, and while this makes Lutherans nervous, primarily to listen to scripture, but also then to listen to ways that scripture applies in your own life. So there is this listening, and not just running off and doing whatever you want. And we, we did this in the past where meditation is the Latin word for a cow that chews cud. So choose and savors, choose and works, choose and digests, and then choose again, right? Silence before speaking. So uh, we put that in advance of prayer, and then the emphasis by Jesus on short and beautiful. Um, you know, the, one, of the, one of the things about the demonic, one of the things about the devil is he's ugly. Now, in the imagination of people who make films, this is usually physically terrifying, you know, okay, and not wrong, but of course, the devil is a spirit, and so when he takes a form, uh, you know, that's not the primary thing. To say that the devil is ugly is to primarily to say he is anti-Jesus. So Jesus is the most beautiful thing that ever happened, and Jesus on the cross is the most beautiful action in the history of the human race, as odd as that sounds. I've talked to you about how Jesus is the blue note, like in jazz, slightly off and makes sense of everything else. Because Jesus shows us what it is to be beautiful, which is to honor his Father and to live in holiness and to live for others. Oculi, the verse we just read, 
my eyes, right, oculi, what do we see? We see Jesus who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so this is about how far we've come. And then we just got to the point where Jesus is giving us his focus. And one way to sum his focus is the kingdom of God. And so very quickly, the Lord's Prayer goes into our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The kingdom will do next time around, but I just want to, I want to try to show you how these things fit together because as I tried to say last week, I understand the Lord's Prayer to be immediately a prayer about the Holy Trinity. Our Father is the Father, of course. The kingdom is Jesus, and hallowed be thy name, thy, thy will be done is the Holy Spirit. So immediately in the Lord's Prayer, you name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then immediately after that, you apply them to your own life, to daily bread, so you need sustenance, to forgiveness, spiritual care for yourself and others, and protection. Don't lead me uh, into temptation and protect me from the evil one, right? So you have the sum of the Christian life in something that takes you about 60 seconds to say, or 60 minutes, depending on if you use beads or not. So, okay, so that's kind of where we are. I know that I test your patience. It's kind of fun. Okay, no, sorry. There's every possibility that being sassy is my spiritual gift. Okay, I took an inventory once and I self-assessed. You can see how valuable it was. So, six, Jesus gives us his father. Back when I was a boy, you know, doing my PhD, all the rage was the Jesus Project. All the snappiest scholars would get together a time or two a year, and they would read a passage of scripture. And then, you know, it was like, you know, sorority rush. They would drop marbles in a box, black or red as I recall. Black is Jesus didn't say it, and red said he did. In the Lord's Prayer, the only thing they could agree on that Jesus said was Abba, or Father. Potter, as it's written, Abba, as it was likely said, or as the scriptures always have next to each other. It's only there three times, Abba, ho, Potter. It's always, they're always together. So you have this intimate Abba, Papa, and you have this more formal Potter, your head of the family and head of me and I need you. The only word in the entire Lord Prayer that they said was original to Jesus was Abba. Now, the history of the world can be written as the history of turning vices into virtues. Who cares what they said? Nobody's looked at that book in 20 years. But what's so interesting is the one thing that they would all agree on across the theological spectrum, even from really non-believers to believers, was that Jesus called God Father. This was revolutionary. And the boldness of suggesting that intimacy means there's something different about this guy. He is out of his mind. It's an unbelievable act of hubris, right? Or maybe it's true. And the most wonderful thing is that he gives his father to you. So, um, you know, did Jesus say Abba or Potter? He actually said both, Aramaic and Greek, and he spoke both, and Hebrew too, and you know, this and that, and you can argue about which way, but in the end, it all sort of comes together. So I sort of left you with this notion of what is a father. And um, 
you know, this is my great rebellion against, uh, well, against a lot of things, almost too many that I can name. Um, one is a ham-fisted masculinity movement. Another is the very misogynistic tendency of churches where we say, we don't know what to do with women, so we don't do anything. You know, the continuing anger and nervousness of people who are influencers and in the lead, who sort of denigrate everybody else to make themselves wonderful, which would be, as you've understood it already, anti-Christ. To, you know, even dumb, stupid things. I read, uh, you know, a thing <laughs> of a Missouri Senate pastor quoting favorably a guy who just broke it down this way, men are strong or women are weak. And you know, I thought to myself, I know the guy, I know he has children. Was he A, out having a pizza and a beer while his wife gave birth, or B, in the birthing room? Because I could see how you could be dumb if you were out having a pizza and a beer, but if you're in the birthing room, probably the last thing you want to say about a woman is that she's weak. You know, I accidentally got, when Claire was being born, I accidentally got my thumb near Kirby's mouth and she almost bit it off. <laughs> there didn't seem to be any weakness there in any way, shape, or form, right? Like, yeah, so. But nevertheless, you know, I could go on for days about that and my disappointment about how we just absorb the world into the church uncritically and frankly just are stupid in so many ways. I tried to suggest to you a way out last week and that's what I want to pursue today, which is not um, by way of simile, God is like, or not by way of metaphor, as this, then God, but rather the literal notion of God is, or more importantly, even for Jesus, addressing God as Father and defining God as Father, and it room, leaves no room for wiggle. And so that's where I want to see if I can take you today, and I want to show you two things. This has always been the case from Old Testament to New, and number two, the archetypical definition of Father is the Father in the story of the prodigal son. And with that definition, it blows up and needs a, forces a rethinking of people who define masculinity and then as its counterpart, femininity. And I'd even go farther if I you know, had the time and the will to suggest to you that that's really a lost cause and what really should be focused upon is virtue, you know, love, peace, kindness, gentleness, patience, self-control, which are given to all Christians. And so in some sense, the whole argument is, you know, 10 degrees off true north, which is how heresy always is. So there, I've opened up a very large box for you listening on the tape, but I'm going to carry on with the people I got in front of me because you're not here and there's nothing you can do about it. So here we go. <laughs> on the next page, um, Father is, of course, a mark of superiority and intimacy. And those are both good things. I want my father to be superior to me because I want wisdom from my father. I want strength from my father. I also want my father to love me and tell me that he loves me. These are not difficult things. You know, we want these things at the same time. And what happens then is that um, 
This is exactly the father that Jesus gives us, Abba and Pater both, right? And he explains it to us how it works. So I've given you kind of in bold, father is best defined by Jesus in the story of the prodigal son, where Jesus does not describe the fathers as he knew them. And I read you the text last week, which I wish I would have said myself, which is to look around at fathers on the earth and then say God is like this is idolatry. That is to say that we do theology from bottom to top. That is anti-revelation. That is anti-incarnation. That is anti-Christ. The only way that we know who God is is he tells us who he is. Yes, there are some things we can grasp by simile, God is like. There are some things we can grasp by metaphor, as da-da-da, God, da-da-da. Yes, yes, that is true, but not primary. Primary is literal speech. Primary is revelation. Primary is top-down. The other things, of course, are extraordinarily helpful. They are poetic. They fill in blanks. They, they, they cast the imagination. They're very, very important, but they are in second place, and to put them in first place is idolatry. Don't do that, okay? So I'm gonna to suggest to you that the prodigal's father is already there in Hosea, literal speech, okay? Literal speech, Hosea one to nine. And the God that is revealed here, or the father that is revealed here, is marked by the virtues of compassion, tenderness, and love, which is not the way people who are describing masculinity talk, unfortunately. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Literal speech. God came and took a people, and he made these people his own. He took them through the Red Sea. He brought them to the promised land. He made them what they were. Right? When Israel was a child, my child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. If you have a son, then you are a father. So the father has a son. The father has a son named Israel. The father also has a son who fulfills all that Israel is, named Jesus the Christ. Now, typical son behavior. The more they were called, the more they went away. Ah, right? Forgive me for my sonship. Verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. So he doesn't give up on them, right? This is proper fatherly behavior. You're a father, you have a son, your son rebels. Your choice is, you know, you can, you can disown them, you can walk away from them, you can ignore them, you can get busy with something else. Or a proper father defined by God the Father is, you still take time to teach them. In this case, I taught them to walk. I took them up in my arms, right? This is normally how we think about mothers. But then, of course, Jesus once says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers chicks under her wings. So does that mean Jesus is feminine, or does it mean he has a virtue, or does it mean that masculinity has a tender component? This is not just so easy as just saying this and that. Men are strong, women are, this is dumb. It's just so, you can hardly, I wish I didn't have, actually, I wish it never crossed my brain, right? It's a waste of my life. I'll never have that six seconds left that it took me to figure out how dumb it really was. It was so dumb, it's D-U-M dumb, okay? 
I led them with cords of kindness, fatherly kindness, with bands of love, fatherly love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. I bent down to them and I fed them. Really important here is that a father is always a father. You're always the adult when you have children. And it doesn't matter what your children do, you're still the adult in the room. It doesn't matter if they're 50. You're still the father, you're still the adult. Act like an adult. But notice that the father is always making the first move. Again and again, the prodigal son story, what happens? Every day the father goes out to the road, high ground, and he casts his eye across the landscape to see if he can see his son coming back to him. And then one day he does. Remarkable. They shall not return to the lands of Egypt. You know what that means? It means I won't have another flood and kill everybody. I won't put him into bondage for another 400 years. I won't take revenge. There's no retribution. I still love them. Pain's a good teacher, but pain has a limit. And pain actually gets defined in a way between a father and a son where the trick is to know when to stop. Not when to start. Anybody can start. The trick is to know when to stop just enough to change course, just enough to grab attention, not from revenge, not asking for vindication, not from vengeance, because none of those are the way of love, and God is love. They shall not return, but now a lesser thing. Assyria will be their king. So they're going to, Babylonian captivity will be a short time. Why? Because they refused. You can't make anybody else do anything except by raw force, and you can only do that for a short period of time. Fathers get old, sons grow strong. Fathers shrink, uh, sons get big. And frankly, they can flee you or pop you in the nose and never see you again. If that's the relationship you want, then be a hard ass. But if not, follow God the Father. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. They don't listen, right? My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to me, to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So there's the law, and here's the gospel. A father to his son. How can I give you up? You're never not a son, and I'm never not a father. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. Right? Recoil means I couldn't possibly do that. Retreat. The father's retreating. You know, without being made to retreat. How, how, how can I do this, right? Um, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What's the response to a sinful child? Wisdom, your sins aren't good for you. Counsel, you made a mistake here. You're doing something that you think will be good for you, but this will not be good for you. 
And that is the definition of every sin. You do something that you think will be good for you, but it turns out, and other people know, often your parents, they've seen it before and they will not be good for you. This is why chat GPT is not a threat, because it is a data gatherer, but not a wisdom giver. There's a difference between data and experience. So, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. I am God and not a man. I'm the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The ultimate example of this is the Son on the cross following the Father's directive. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. Like father, like son. Now it's very, very hard to define a masculinity um, that is basically rough, sharp elbows that impose will on somebody else as the primary paradigm of life. Yes, if you want to talk about military necessity, if you want to talk about protecting the weak, if you want to talk about preserving what God has given to you, fair and important. But then talk about that thoroughly in the way that Jesus began Lent, talking about the poor who need your alms, right? And people who don't have any place to live, and people at the beginning of their life, even in utero, and people at the end of their life who are being encouraged to kill themselves, Talk it all the way through. If you want to play that, play it. But don't be a hypocrite. So, um, the father has every right to respond with anger and punishment. You have every right to this, and right works by way of the law, by justice. The father has every right to respond with anger and punishment, but he chose love. And now, now, and who always has just the right turn of phrase? All boundaries of patriarchal behavior are broken through. This is not the picture of a remarkable father. This is the portrait of God, whose goodness, love, forgiveness, care, and compassion have no limits at all. Jesus presents God's generosity by using all the imagery that his culture provides while constantly transforming it. And just to push harder than the next point, this is what it means to be holy as a father, as a person, also as a child. Love and holiness are synonyms in God's heart. This will be one of the great, one of the great revelations of heaven is when all things come clear and mercy and love and obedience and compassion are all synonyms, and they all pull in the same direction. So Jesus gives us his holiness here. To hallow something, hagio, right? Like hagiography, the story of a saint, is to set it apart and uh, make it special, right? And, you know, we're well aware that only God can make his name holy. That's great stuff from the, second command, or sec from the small catechism. So God 
is holy and God stays holy. But the great mystery is that God acts in holiness and that holiness expresses it to us as a little bit of law and a ton of gospel. Sin abounds because it's accused by the law. Grace abounds all the more. The rookie mistake of seminarians and pastors is they think that it's a zero-sum game. You have two sins and God forgives two sins. That's not how it works. Sin abounds, you have two sins. Grace abounds all the more, God forgives 10 sins. And you do two more sins and then God forgives another 20 just to make sure you get the point. And you do two more and so he forgives 50. And so grace floods the landscape. And you cannot have a paradigm of God and human beings. You cannot have a paradigm of fathers and sons or fathers and children or mothers and daughters. You cannot have a paradigm. It is illicit. It is idolatry. It is antichrist to have a paradigm which is primary, primarily vengeful or tyrannical or insistent as a zero-sum game. It's sinful. It just is not true. I don't know how many different ways I can say this, but it's just not here. So, you know, um, here it is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, I'm trying to get you to scramble this a little bit because I want to try to get you to say this first bit just as an exercise, not always, but just as, an, as a Lenten exercise to try to understand our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name is one thing. It says this, that you have a Father who lives in heaven. Heaven is the place where God lives. And heaven is characterized by holiness. It's that easy. Our Father, my Father, our Father, your Father, our Father, our Father, the Father of Jesus, my brother, my sibling, right? Your brother, your sibling. Our Father lives in heaven, and the characteristic of heaven is that it is flooded by the holiness of God, which is to say the light of God, which is to say the mercy of God, which is to say the light of God. All of these things come together. Love, light, mercy, joy, warmth, eternity, joy. That's how it starts. Fact of the matter. You can believe it or not believe it. This is what heaven looks like. And heaven and earth are interlocked. They were interlocked at one time. The story of Eden is the story of heaven and earth interlocking and overlapping, as N.T. Wright says. It's a genius way of talking about it. And so heaven is near and heaven is ours in the person of Jesus. That's the big news. The big news is that he's come to set things right. And you're praying for this with this kind of confidence that recognizes that God is your father. So whatever you've done and whatever you've been, he'll meet you with compassion because that's what is in heaven. Right? Jeez, it's just, you can hardly believe it. So, may your name be hallowed. May your name be holy. Hallowed be thy name. What is this? In Hebrew, this is called a divine passive. It's when something's being done, but nobody can do it but God. You want, a thing is going to happen, but only God can make it happen. So only God can hallow his own name. And in some sense, it's almost a tautology. He's holy, and so by nature, he's holy. But of course, as a second as the, as the small catechism says, God's name is holy indeed without our prayers, but we pray in this petition that it would be holy among us also. We're not praying that God would make himself holy. He's already holy. 
We're praying that he would make himself holy to me and that he would do that without destroying me. And the only hope I have for that is if he does it by way of love. Because if he does it by way of justice, I'm dead and so are you. So this is begging for mercy from the God who made you and the God who loves you, the God who never gives up on you. That's what this is. You're begging for mercy. When you beg that heaven would come, that that the world would overlap and interlock again, you're begging for change. But it is not licit then for you to define the change. You can't beg for heaven to come and then say, oh, and I'll have my way. It was your way and my way that got us in trouble in the first place. Why go back to that? The pain has been sufficient. Change. So it's this um, passive, uh, divine passive where God does the work. Um, Here it is, right, Uh, in Ezekiel. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned. Or you can put it another way. I was, good, I was good for what I said, but Israel wasn't. God said, come be my child. Israel said, we will, and then they didn't. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. God does holy things because God is holy. Really interesting. We almost always think of holy things as destroying evil things. But in Jesus, the revelation of holiness is saving evil things. Like you, like me. Because a father always wants his child back. And, you know, the whole history of the world can be written as God scheming or luring you back home. What could he possibly do? Calvin is genius here. What doesn't change in God? God has changed us. What doesn't change? This never changes, that God wants you home again. You know what does change? All the ways that he would try to bring you home again. So you do dumb stuff and he tries to head you off at the pass and you shift and do another dumb thing and he forgives that and tries to send somebody to help you and you do another dumb thing and there's an angel there to help you and then you do another dumb thing and two dumb things in a row. And so then, you know, he does a miracle. And that's the story of your life. Because he loves you and he wants you home. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? You're holy. And that holiness expresses itself primarily as love. Yes. If you don't want it, if you refuse it, he will not force you to be saved and he will not force you to stop suffering. But my best advice is give up. Give up your own way of thinking about things. Give up your own way of acting. Give up what you think is good because all the things that you and I think are good keep going wrong. Okay, I mean, geez, it could not be clearer, could it? But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for my sake. And I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned. You're guilty, and I'm going to make it right. And the nations will know that I am God, declares the Lord, 
when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Back when I used to watch the news, I often observed that 20 very negative things would be reported, but it was often the one occasional kindness which stopped everybody in their tracks. That's this. He's going to vindicate himself among the nations, not by, I destroyed my people, they were a mistake, but by, I love my people in spite of themselves. That is, he vindicates us in an otherworldly way. Jesus, my kingdom is not of this world. So then I take you all the way to point number nine. In the flesh and blood of Jesus lives the divine heart of the Holy Trinity. Heaven is where God lives. This is just simple, you know. Heaven is where God's, it's his address. Heaven is where God lives. And then there's always this question about, is that near or far? And I want to try to get you not to think in terms of inches and miles, but just think in terms of sin and holiness. If heaven is a holy place where God lives, but God is not love, then heaven is very, very far away. But if heaven is the place where God lives and it's flooded by the divine love that pours out from our Heavenly Father's heart, then heaven is as close as the Holy Eucharist. It's as close as the Eucharist, as, as, as the baptismal font. It's as close as absolution. It's as close as that crucifix that gets carried in before the service, right? It's as close as the smell of incense or the crucifix you wear around your neck. That's how close heaven is. It is as close as the flesh and blood of Jesus, as close as the Holy Spirit. That's how close it is. Is God near or far? God is near. And so the long list of places where God is near, in Eden, in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in Mary's womb, and finally in the flesh and blood of Jesus. And so I've done this, you know, this is a bit long, and I don't want to do this again next week because there's so many other things to do, but I give you 1 Kings 8 and 9. Here's the quick story, right? Solomon says, I just built a temple. Go get the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God lives, and bring it up into the new building. So the priests went and got the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it up to the top of Mount Zion. They bring it up to the new temple. Verse 10, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now, the Israelites are used to this. There was a cloud on top of Sinai, and there was a cloud, um, um, remember the cloud covered the tabernacle and when the cloud went up, it led the people forward. So that was God's presence. They followed the cloud into the promised land. Now the cloud is landed again in the Holy of Holies on Mount Zion. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. There's something in this. You remember when Moses went into it, They worshiped a golden calf because they thought he'll never come back. There's something about this presence which is overwhelming. You can barely take it. You heard about it in Transfiguration. It made, you know, it made the disciples absolutely kooky. 
right? Let's build some shacks and stay here forever. Just, you know. But then, verse 27, Solomon says what you want to say. This is great, but are you going to stick around? I mean, on good days, it's fabulous to be close to God. You know, when you really need to be close to God, it's on bad days. Are you going to stick around? Verse 28, are you going to listen to our prayers? Are you going to open your eyes and see the problems I've got in my life? Right? Are you going to listen to me when I'm begging, either for vindication or for forgiveness? Chapter 9, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, verse 5, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you made before me. I have consecrated, so that's holy. I have made this place holy. I've set it aside. Same word, hallowed be thy name, holy. So now whatever's happening in heaven is coming to earth. I've consecrated this house by putting my name there forever. Now you just have to pause here a second. And you have to remember that the last thing that happens, the first thing that happens when you go in is you've, the name is put on you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you belong to God, and this is the reason from last week, the demons flee. Make the sign of the cross and chase the demons away. It's the reason you wear a crucifix. Because then the demons can't bear it. It's the, it's the reason you take the Holy Supper. You come, as um, Chrysostom says, like lions, bearing, breathing fire and bearing the cross of Christ. It's the last thing that happens. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you, give you peace, right? Thus says the ironic, this is how you bless people. You know how you bless people? You take my name and you put it on them. Well, he's going to take his name now and put it on the temple and he's always going to be there. Of course, this is why later Paul says to you, don't you know you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? How'd you get to be a temple of the Holy Spirit? You got baptized. And the way the Lord put his name on the temple, he put his name on you. That's why you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live inside you. That's why you're safe. That's why you shouldn't act like an idiot and do all those little crazy things you do. Stop doing them. Now your sins aren't good for you. So, you know, if you need to be made holy, if you've got sins, you should go to the font, maybe touch it on the way in and remind yourself that God baptized you and then kneel down and dump your sins out on the floor. And I think it's Mary Caesar who cleans them up and brings it to us. I'm not sure. And then, uh, you know, listen to, you know, I mean, I told Byans this morning, he makes me happy to come to church. When I get a sermon like that, I am happy to come to church. Makes me feel like my day has been made. And then you go to the Eucharist where Jesus, who hung on the cross, hangs on your tongue, and you wear him outside into a very cruel world, and come what may, you're in God's hand, St. Felicity. We talked about her earlier. And so you can see why then the Eucharist is the center of the world, right? Look at this, point 10. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by, eat. Come by wine and milk without money, without price. This is like, this is Luther, right? It's all free. Can you just come to the feast? Come home. 
come eat. This is great stuff. Why do you spend your money on things that aren't bread? And why do you work for things that don't satisfy? Ah. Listen. Diligent to me. Eat what's good. Delight in good food. Listen to me. Come to me. Live. I made a covenant with you. It's steadfast. I love you. I love David. I love everybody. It's the nations, right? This isn't to Israel. Everyone calm is how it starts. Jews and Gentiles both. It's this beautiful stuff. Seek the Lord where he may be found. Call when he's near. If you're wicked, forsake your way. Because, you know, I don't think like you. So don't try to define fathers by thinking from the bottom to the top. You should think from the top to the bottom. Don't bring that here anymore. We're sick of this. It always ends up in Babylon by bus. You Marley fans. <laughs> Baptized into the Orthodox Church. You can watch his funeral on YouTube. Glorious. But the rain and the snow come down from heaven. They don't return, but there's water on the earth that makes it sprout. Seed in the sower get bread. Seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, not return empty. It'll do what I says, which is why you never despair of your children and God never despairs of us. For you shall go out in joy. You shall be led forth in peace. You shall break forth in singing. And the trees in the field will clap their hands. And everything will work out if you would just do it my way. How many times does your father say this to you? If you just stop being so hard-headed. If you just listen. But I'm going to put it the other way too. If you're a father, stop being a dork. Say what Jesus says. That will keep you in a dork-free zone. <laughs> your job is not to impose your will on your children. Your job is to deliver the will of God in holiness and compassion. It's an art form, not an invading army. And in that, then, point 12, you know, Jesus gives us this freedom that we can live in these things and not worry about it. The Lord will sort it out, right? And all that is bundled up just in this very first line. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Got to go to church. Love you. Happy Lent. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you soon.